0: There is one truth in the Bible more than any other truth designed to radically transform your heart and my heart. It's the truth I prayed about. The truth is the fact that God is love. That truth His designed God goes to great lengths in his word to demonstrate that reality to you and to me to help us understand that he is for us. And he desires a relationship with every single one of you no matter where you come and what place of life you walk from into these doors this morning. Now, this is a truth that I'll be very honest, this fact that God loves and God is for you. It's a truth that I'm incredibly passionate about. And as I've probed that passion, I realize that a lot of times that passion in me and why I'm so charged up about this truth is because it's a truth that I have wrestled immensely with over the years of my life. And still to this day, at times wrestle with. Now, I don't wrestle with the intellectual knowledge. I read and understand and take scripture at face value and know, and I've been taught from small on up in a Christian home and in a Christian school that I went to and in Bible school and everything else, I intellectually know that God is love. I know that. I've been taught that. I intellectually, but where I have wrestled is taking it beyond the intellect to the point that it enters my heart and it transforms my life in the way that God designed for this truth to transform our lives as I think about that, I wonder, you know, have I thought a lot about this and I've had extra time to think about this message because of the hurricane last week. And I've really pondered this. and I thought, Adam, why is it that you have struggled with this truth? And I think my experience is not that different from many of yours. Simple. My, my way of thinking why I've struggled. One thing is I've always had this sense of shame and guilt. And I think most humans who are truly honest with their life can say at some place in life they have sensed this feeling that they don't measure up, that there's something more, that they aren't quite hitting the mark. Now, I think that's compounded in our physical human relationship. I mean, I think of my parents, great Christian parents, loved God and loved me. But at times, you know, you sense I don't quite measure up to the standard that mom and dad have set for me. Maybe it's my grandfather who lived with me. He lived in a basement in a kind of an in-laws quarters down in our home. And I'll never forget his kids. We would bring home our report cards. And for every a we had on our report card, we got a dollar. Now I didn't get a lot of money. (laughs) Matter of fact, I don't can probably count on one hand how many dollars I got. I struggled with school. So maybe it was that I think, you know, I never quite measured up to my grandparents standard. I started playing sports in school, played football. I remember some of the harsh words that were spoken to me by a coach. And I remember, you know, they're that sense of shame and guilt. I don't quite measure up. I enter the working world, work at Super Value. I've worked at Crystal Springwater, Cloyster Springwater. You know, the bosses at times, I don't quite measure up. And there's this overall sense of shame and guilt, let alone the reality that there's a God out there who's a judge, who's going to stand at the end of time and look down at me and call me out on my life. And so there's a sense of shame and guilt that kind of hangs around. There's another sense where I grew up with this perfectionistic personality. And I kind of lived with this reality that I think a lot of us, though you may not be a perfectionist, understand this to some capacity. It's the fear of failure. To me, my life, failure was not an option. And that's a dangerous place to live. But I'll tell you, when you live there, and when I've lived there many a times, it helps me understand then, boy, when I fail, because we all do it, some, some bigger than others. Is God still there embracing me? Does God love? I think beyond that, we as humans in our sinful natures tend to be critical people. So whether it's I grew up with a family who was at a restaurant, maybe, and, and I'm a small child and someone comes into the restaurant and I hear the, the tape, the family and the people who love and are good people begin to size up the person that just walked through the door. Oh, my goodness. Did you hear what just happened to them? Oh, and they, and they begin to talk very critically looking outward or whether it's with friends when I was in high school. You know, one of the things I've learned about kids, they're brutal. I fear for my children at times and kids just are nasty at times. I think adults are too. Adults just learn to get political with it. But I remember in high school, I remember, you know, again, I was kind of more in the in crowd. So I tended not to be at the giving end of this criticism, but I would be in the group listening to them give it. Oh my goodness. look What are they wearing? Look how fat they are. And on and on it goes. And as I begin, as I walk away from that, though I'm in the kind of more the in crowd, I'm not at the receiving end of that. You know what happens, though, when you go away from that? You wonder, what are they saying about me when I'm not there? We're critical people. So this critical nature, this fear of failure, and I think this sense of shame and guilt has compounded for me personally to embrace. So there's this God out there that radically loves when the people around me are... uh, I think making it even bigger for me, and and I'll be very honest, and I'll say, you know, I outgrew the Sunday school answers of God loves when I began to get, as I began to grow and I began to look out at the world and I began to see human injustice and suffering that blew my mind. And why I'd encountered it for the first time as a a young adult man and and working at a camp and looking at some of the kids and listening to their stories of the life that they've come from. And as times i spent in inner city New York and down in Charlotte, North Carolina in the city and up in the, the Appalachian region of central Pennsylvania looking at the brokenness and the devastation of the human existence. And then going bigger than that and looking at the Hitlers and the Saddam Husseins of the world and the genocides and the human sex trafficking and HIV AIDS. And you go on down the line with human suffering. I begin to step back and say, now, wait a minute, God, you're telling me that you're a God of love. And I wrestle. And I wrestle to take this book and say where it says God is love and move it from up here down to here to the point where it radically transforms my heart and my life. I got two emails um recently, it was in the last month. I want to read these to you. I'm not gonna tell you who they're from. <laughs> uh, first one comes from someone here in our group who's a senior. This is someone that I respect highly. I met with uh, um Steve Lindsay recently, Garden Spot Village. And he shared some of me as I was talking about how do we what do we do effectively to reach seniors. And he talked about Adam. He says, one of the things you need to do is you need to determine, first of all, whether they're an elder or they're just elderly. He says, there's a big difference. People can get old and really crotchety. They can get old and nasty. He says, or people can grow old and sweet. And you want to work with those who've grown old and gotten sweet. This person who sent me this email is one of the elder category. I have high respect for them. They're the pinnacle in me of the Christian faith. And I hope that it's someday... If God tarries and he doesn't return, I can s- attain and walk the way that this person has. Suffering entered this person's world a number of years ago, and here's what they said. They said, I'm enjoying the series you have preached in First John. Thanks. The one in God's love touched my heart. Then they went on to elaborate on what they have been through in life. I never doubted my faith, referring to this period of time, but I felt that God didn't care about me anymore. From someone that I look to and have high respect for. Now, this second one is a Facebook message I got. This is from someone in our community, not here on a weekly basis. Someone that we've, I've been reaching out to. Someone who is uh, in midlife and single. And listen to this. They, they, they're struggling to understand who God is. And they write this. I'm not at a good place right now. I don't know where to turn or who to talk to. I'm crying out to God, but at the same time, cursing him. Am I going crazy? Does God turn his back on people? After a period of time, I fear that he has done this to me. Is there any way to get him back? I don't know why, but I feel like I don't have much time left. I know that that must sound weird, but this thought keeps nagging me. I need to know. Listen to what this person needs to know. I need to know that God loves me and forgives me. They go on and write this. This is profound. When I live in a world of people who can't love and forgive, it is hard for me to imagine that a God I can see, can't see, can love me. Please don't think I'm crazy. I'm just a person trying to figure out how to handle so much pain and emotion from years past. People wrestle with the love of God. It's normal. But I'll be honest. Scriptures, and what we're going to look at in 1 John this morning, it is a truth that when we can get more than just our intellectual heads around it, it is a truth that is designed to radically transform your heart and mind, to transform your life and the community around us. So it's one, as we open up, open up with me the book of 1 John continuing our studies. We've been there this summer. First John chapter four. Okay. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, you're going to find first John towards the back. It's a few, few, uh, small books from the back of the Bible. First John chapter four. In that one email, when that person said, when I live in a world of people who can't love and forgive, it is hard for me to imagine that a God I can't see can love me. You know, God's love is hard to get our, God's love is hard to get our hearts around. And here's this guy that I can't see telling me he loves me. And here's one of the things that 1 John is going to go at this morning in 1 John 4. This is a big chapter. We're actually going to spend time in these verses this week and next week. Because I think it's, it's, it's huge. It's life-giving. I think we want to take our time to grasp it. It's the love of God. This is what we're going to see this morning. To really grasp and get our hearts and our head around the love of God. To grasp it. One of the things is it helps to see it. When this person wrote this email to me and says, I have never seen God. I felt like she was, this person was quoting right out of the book of first John. Cause that is one of the things that we're going to get here. We have never seen God. And here's this God that tells us he loves us, but I've never seen him. So to grasp it, it helps to see it. And guess where we see it. So it's the heart of chapter four. We see it in those who has God living in them. So to grasp it, to really get our heads around the love of God, it helps to see it and experience it and receive it from those who have embraced the love of God. It's a critical critical concept that we see here. now. One of the things that I've learned, if you're here this morning and this is not a struggle for you, one of the things I've learned is I talk to people like that, if you can get your heart around God's love and you live from a place of that radical love, chances are very good is that you have been loved well by someone in your life. If you're a person who says, you know what? I don't struggle at him with the love of God like you do. I don't struggle like I see other people do. The chances are very good. If you probe back through your life, there's a point in history where someone has loved you very, very well with the true biblical concept of love. First John talks about this so clearly. You want to understand the love of God. You've got to receive it from those who have it. Now, look with me at first John four. Starting at verse seven. It says, dear friends, again, I hope you, this concept all throughout the book, John calls these readers friends, friends. I mean, it's, he is a, John is known as the apostle of love. He is a passionate pastor, very black and white, very direct, very brutal at times, but his heart bleeds for the people he's writing to. Dear friends. This is moving after the context where we just saw, John said, discern for yourself the spirits. Make judgment calls on people in the world. Do they love Jesus? Do they embrace Jesus? And do they love people? We just saw that. Now, he's going to continue with this thought then of loving God and loving people. Verse 7, dear friends, let us love one another. Now, look at this this next phrase. For love comes from God. Now, I'm going to be very honest. I'm not going to spend a lot of time getting deep in this section we're going to take these words in chapter 4 at face value a lot of time i mean this this chapter if we could just learn to take these words at face value and live them out this is going deep in scripture the simple concept here for love comes from god the concept is love one another so you're going to tell me that you believe in jesus then love love comes from god If I'm going to, the other concept of this, if I'm going to love well, if I'm going to love other people well, I've got to first embrace this love from God. He is the author and the pure definition of love. Now, continues in verse seven. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So again, this confidence. We saw this at the end of chapter three. You can have rock solid assurance of your eternal security if you love and love well. One of the things that John drives at A lot of people doubt their salvation. John says, you know what? If you love and love well, there's no need to doubt your salvation. Over in chapter 3, he said, your heart will be put at rest when it doubts and when you struggle, if you love and love well. And not only that, you have confidence before him, it says in chapter 3. And you can stand boldly and you can pray bold because you love. So that's the heart of this. God is the author of love, and if you love well, there is a good chance that you are of God. Now verse 8 and this concept's going to run all through this verse 8. Whoever look I mean this is blunt brutal black and white language but look at the you got to let these words set in. Whoever does not love what? Does not know God. Why? What's the reason? This is so simple. Because God is love. So people want to tell me yes I know God, I love God, I worship God, I'm a Christian. The marked measure of a Christian's life, John thirteen thirty-five. This is how the world will know that you're my disciple if you love one another. If I do not radically love, if I am not consumed with my life in an others-oriented position, I've got to call into question, am I of God? John is very clear with this. He goes on then, verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. So he says, God demonstrated this for us. God showed us a picture of this. As he continues, he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. The verse that this reminded me of is in Romans. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. It's one of my favorite verses in scripture. You've probably seen us on the wall multiple times. But it says this, but God demonstrates, the word demonstrates, it's a picture, he's showing, he's putting it on display. God demonstrates his own love for us. God loves you. God is for you and he wants you to see it. He says this, while we were still sinners, in other words, while you were jacked up, while you had problems, while you were filled with your shame and guilt, when you were laden and burdened with your sin, he moved in your direction. He doesn't say get cleaned up and come and have a nice meal with me. He says, no, I'm going to come and enter your world and clean you up. While you were still sinners, Christ died for us, plural, all people. This is radical love at a great cost to him. He put his own son. There was for the very first time in all of eternity, past, present, and future. God separated. The, there was radical intimacy between God and Jesus. No sin. in this is a perfect relationship. And God, Jesus, took all of sin on his own shoulders and bore the full wrath of God for you. So that, and for me, so that I don't need to. And this is what John then comes back to in chapter 4, and he defines as love. This is love. Now, continue reading. Verse 10. This is love. Now, look at what this says. This is love. This word love pops up all throughout this. This is love, he's going to say. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He moved in your direction to make a way to pay a price so that you could enter into relationship with the creator God of the universe in a way that was impossible without him. He initiated it. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He starts the relationship. Now, verse 11 Actually, let me, let me do something here. This, this chapter unfolds in some um, pretty profound ways. I want to kind of sum it up this way. We see in this chapter God's love, and we see definition of God's love. God's love. God is love. God loves. God has demonstrated his love. What happens then, we embrace that love. We embrace the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible uses the language of then I am born again. I am saved. I have salvation. I'm now in a relationship with him. God's love. I embrace that love. I have salvation. The, First John talks about this. We just saw it in chapter 4, chapter 3. When I do that, I have Jesus then, the Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, now comes and resides and lives inside of me and seals me unto his own, adopts me into his family. Now, the natural response then is, is that we naturally express God's love. And when I work through this progression, I can stand before God with confidence and have assurance of my salvation. Now, here's what happens. I sum it up with buckets. I use buckets to illustrate this. The goal of my life is to drink deep of Jesus Christ, is to be consumed and to take in this radical love of God, to to drink deep of him, to worship him, to get my head around him, to connect with him. What happens then the natural process is as I drink deep as I take in I overflow we're going to this comes out very clear in, in the next verse I overflow into other people's lives Okay so as I drink deep as I understand who God is he fills me he empowers me and I continue on a daily continual basis to come before him as a needy sinner as a person coming before him, yes, I'm in his family, but I need to continue to nurture that relationship. And I come and I drink deep. As I drink deep, my bucket fills up with who he is. And as it fills up with who he is, the natural response is you stick a hose in a bucket and let it keep running. What happens? The water spills out of the bucket. And as it spills out of the bucket, hopefully it's spilling into other people's buckets. And that is how other people then embrace and see and in- and grab hold of the love of God. Now one of my fears is is that we don't do so good at this. One of my fears is, is is we have a lot of our buckets turned upside down. We're trying to love people and love people well. We try really hard. And here's what I've learned is all human beings the scriptures teach whether you love God or not Whether you are a Christ follower or not, what's true of every single human being is you have the divine image stamped on your heart and on your life. Every human being in some capacity has God stamped on their hearts and lives. So in some capacity, we have God in us in some capacity. You may not be in a saved and a life-giving relationship with God, and you may be separated eternally from him, but in some capacity, you have his image in you. So what I find happen is we go to give our lives away to other people without first receiving from him. So we go to give it away. So this is someone's life. They're giving their life to me. So I go and I drink it down. Mm. Ah, Thanks for giving to me. Now, you notice what happens. Our lives are soon empty, and they're shallow, and there's nothing left. There is still droplets of water in there. The divine is still in some capacity in my heart and in my life. It's there. So in some capacity, I still have some in there. But what we end up doing then is I've given everything away I have to give. I'm not being filled up. So what we do is we turn our lives upside down and we shake. It's like trying to get that last little ice cube out of the, out of the cup. It's one of the most frustrating things in the world. I love chewing an ice. I, I, don't, I guess I'm anemic I've been told that that can be a sign of that, but think that last little ice and it gets up. we sit there and we shake and we shake and we shake, trying to love other people. And it's miserable. It's duty. It's hard. It drains us and breaks us, and we get through into this point in life where we're just depressed and we're like, "I cannot want to give another thing to that person." because there's nothing coming in, because our buckets are upside down, because we're focused, all of our attention on that person, shaking and shaking and shaking. And that's what the picture is. God is saying, I'm here. I love you. I am for you. I'm trying to give to you. This is, I think, why many marriages struggle. I look at over the years of the conflict, at at times when Tanya and I have had conflict, and a lot of times, it's at times when I'm either self-absorbed and my bucket's upside down, or at times when I'm so focused on my wife that I cannot see and worship this magnificent creator God of the universe. So my bucket isn't right side up drinking from him, getting his perspective, taking it in deep so that then I can overflow to my spouse. That's why so many human relationships fall apart because we're, this, this chapter says God is love. We love because he first loves. So if I'm not embracing and drinking deep of his love, I am going to have a very hard time loving other people. So the challenge this morning is to drink deep of his love. Now the chapter goes on. Verse 11. Verse 11 and 12 are, I mean, these, (laughs) these verses alone just, confront me and hit me square in the, square in the heart verse 11 dear friends there it is again it's this passion pouring out of john saying i am for you i want you to see this since god so loved us here this argument is again this argument's used all throughout this chapter since god so loved us we also ought to love one another then comes verse 12 verse 12 is <laughs> cool no one has ever seen God. Now, this thought's going to be completed next week when we really dive into the end of this chapter. No one has ever seen God. Matter of fact, no one in this room has ever seen God. No one in human history has ever seen God. In fact, if you come up to me after church this morning and tell me you have seen God, I may pull my phone out and start calling effort to hospital and schedule an appointment for you to get in there to see someone. No one has ever seen God. And you know that, and people who tell you they have, you go, woo, this person's uh, not all connected. No one's seen God, he says, but look at what it says. See the word right after that? No one has seen God. What's the word? But. But. Okay, now look what it says. But if we love one another. Okay, so you haven't seen God. But if you love one another. But if this happens, look at what it says. God lives in us. And what? His love is made complete in us. What does that mean? What does that mean? Here's what I think that means. Grace and love. God is radically others oriented. Grace and love must be experienced to be known or made complete. So how does that look? I want to share a story. It's from a book. I'll be honest where I got it from. It's from Henry Cloud's book. Um, the name of it just slipped my mind, how people grow phenomenal book. I read it a number of years ago and it radically altered how I view ministry. But he talks about it at great length in this book about this concept. And he uses this verse here. And he talks about 1 John 4. And he tells a story. And he tells a story of this guy named Joe, Henry Cloud and John Townsend. They wrote the book Boundaries. Some of you know that's probably their most well known book. They, they started a psych hospital. And in this hospital, they, they treat and work with people who have struggled in life, who are, who are different addicts and, and different uh, split personalities and personal struggles. A pastor checked into their hospital. This pastor checked in. His name was Joe. As Henry uh, Cloud was on to tell the story. This guy named Joe checks in. He was struggling with a sex addiction. It was an addiction that no one in his church knew. His staff didn't know. His elders didn't know. No one in the leadership knew. It was a struggle that he was fighting alone. He was afraid to open up to anyone for fear of judgment and condemnation and being beat up. His life was given to giving to others. He was pouring his life out constantly and he was hurting and he was empty. So he finally says, I got to do something about this because I, I've got a problem. And if I don't take care of this problem, as, as the depression and the isolation set in his, it just got to the point where he says, I got to do something. So he checks into this hospital clouds hospital. Now, when he gets there, they begin to work with him, and they put him. one of the things they use is they use this group therapy and, and, um, Again, have them get into these groups and they work together with them as a group and try and get human relationship developed. There comes a day when cloud shows up to, to the group and this pastor, Joe is not there. So they go down to his room and here he is in his room and they say, how comes you're not in group this morning? He says, well, I'm a, I am i do not know. I just don't feel like it to which they looked him straight in the eye and said, you failed last night. Didn't you? I did hangs his head you need this group now more than ever come with me so they drag him down to the group he sits in the group they continue through the group everyone's sharing as they're sharing joe is sitting there kind of taking in they ask joe how you're doing i'm doing okay i'm doing good i'm you know again shifting away as conversation goes on they finally look at joe and say joe a uh, cloud does and says you need to tell us how you're doing so he begins talking and he begins sharing his struggle. He begins to share his, his life and the hurt and the pain and the sexual abuse that he endured as a child and, and all this other junk that's just kind of pouring out of him in this group and his heart. And, this, and now how he feels isolated and depressed and how he feels trapped as is this, is this spiritual leader that everyone looks to. And he's going on and on about this. And he's, the whole time he's talking, he has shame and guilt stamped all over him as he's staring at the floor in front of him. Now, Henry Cloud looks around the, room, the group, and what he sees is he sees soft eyes, and he sees tears in some, and he sees people who are at the edge of their chair leaning in towards him and moving in his direction. So Henry Cloud wisely stops, and he looks at Joe and says, Joe, I need you to not talk anymore unless you can do it looking at people's eyes. Joe says, I can't do it. He says, look up at their eyes. So he lifts his head and he looks across the room and he catches the eyes of people who are soft, who are for him, who have tears in their eyes as he's talking. And the story is reported that that moment he fell flat on his knees in the chair room and sobbed like a baby uncontrollably. Cloud says what happens at that point, for so the very first time, deep addiction in his heart, the power of that addictive control was snapped and it was broken. He still had a lot of work to do. He still had a lot of things to work on and some measures to put into his life to make sure he doesn't end up back at that place. But at that point, the power and control of the addiction was broken because he received from other people. He saw the love of God in action. He saw the grace of God moving in his direction. See, we can't see God. It's what this verse says. You and I cannot see God, but the one person I can see is you. And if you have God living inside of you, I can ultimately What this passage is getting very close to saying is I can ultimately then see God and God in action and God's love. And when it is moving in my direction, it actually helps me if I can learn to receive it, it helps me begin to fill my bottle up so that I can in turn overflow and give to others so they can see God. We've got to learn to experience the love and grace of God from other people so that love can be completed is what this verse says. Now cloud goes on and he says something very profound about this because there's something I understand fully. (laughs) He uses this story and he says this. Sorry if I made anyone motion sickness, motion sick there. (laughs) Grace and love can be available to us, but we might not be available to grace and love. And one of the things he wrote about that, because he used the life of a pastor to illustrate this. What does a pastor do? What's a pastor's job? It's to give, isn't it? To pour myself out. To give to hundreds of people, to leaders, to to the elder board, to Chris, to my wife, to my family. That's a pastor is a good, spiritual, mature person who has arrived and he's giving. Right? I don't think so, but that's what a lot of people view the pastor. Joe had slipped into that, the story he tells. And what I have found is I've probed what a lot of time what we struggle to do. Why I think sometimes I struggle with the love of God to really internalize it is because I don't open myself up very well to you, to Chris, to my wife, to Jonathan, to Gerald. Why don't I? Well, I think it's a big thing called spiritual pride, first and foremost. Spiritual pride's ugly, it's gruesome. I kind of look at what my job is to give. My job is to teach, not to learn. My job is to be self-sufficient. My job is to constantly be pouring myself out. And as I'm pouring myself out, I'm simply emptying myself of all God's love. And I'm not sitting upwards to receive it. Because I'm not a taker. I'm I'm, I'm not a receiver. I'm a giver. I think another thing is self-rule. I think sin has this gruesome capacity in us to decide I am in charge of my life and I'm going to rule my life. And no one, no one is going to tell me what to do and how to live my life. So what happens in that capacity, others become subjects, not people to serve and to give and receive from. So people become an ends, to the kind of the pawns on the chessboard to move around to get us to said goal and not someone to love and care for and walk with and receive from. I think another one at times I shut down because I've been hurt. And one of the things we're going talk about at depth next week, it gets into the end of this chapter, is fear. Love's a scary thing, isn't it? When you open yourself up, when I open myself up to receive from someone and what comes back to you is pain, what's it make you do? Think twice the next time you go to open up. So I think sometimes what happens is I use it very, very loosely, but at times I have thought like a victim. I've been hurt one too many times. I've been sinned against. And ultimately before God, when we're sinned against, what we have this tendency to do, Is make the problem bigger by compounding more problems on top of it by shutting down by isolating by hiding by pulling away because I've been hurt. So I fully understand at times why I it's hard for me to look to others and receive but I cannot stress enough how important it is. If I'm going to really grasp the love of God, I've got to learn to receive from those of you who love well. And I have a hard time doing that. I think we generally have a hard time doing that in the church because what are we taught Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? Go into the world, be a light into the world, storm darkness, give, serve, and you go on down. And that's all phenomenal stuff. But if I'm not doing it from a place of receiving, I'm never going to get out there and serve well. So take in the love of God. Now, this verse, this chapter continues. Verse 13 we know, here again, you want to have assurance of your salvation. It's one of the reasons we look at the John. It's one of the reasons he wrote. We know, you have assurance. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. It's that graph we looked at earlier. God loves, we embrace that love. He gives us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he, in God, John goes to great lengths in this chapter to help you understand that if you love Jesus, he lives inside of you through the spirit of God. Great lengths, and I think he does it because he wants us to understand that we haven't seen God, but God is walking around with us. I've heard it said this way. <clears throat> Excuse me. I had a professor one time share this with me when he was teaching the book of 1 John, actually. And this has always stuck in my head. He says, have you ever wanted to hug God? Have you ever wanted just to step out and, and have a conversation face-to-face and hug God? Do you know that professor? It's just always stuck in my head. He said, you know what you need to do? Go find someone that God's love is radically in and hug them. And you're hugging God. It's the image that John is going after here is God lives inside of you. And you're going to see a very powerful statement made in just a minute. But let's keep it before we get there. Verse 15, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. It's this, I am in God, he is in me. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. So we know it. It's an experience. We receive it and our cup is faced upward and we are taking it in. We are relying on his love. It goes on. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. John's got a bit redundant, don't you think? <laughs> he says the same thing in all kinds of ways and all, but it, the heart is, please know that God is love. And if you've embraced him, that love is living inside you. Verse 17 in this way, here it comes again, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of what? Judgment. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Because in this world, we are what? Look at this. Do not miss this. You have embraced Jesus. You live in this world. It says you are like him here in this world. Verse 18 then says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a flat out liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this commandment whoever loves God, must also love his brother. I want to wrap up. We're going to come back to the end of these verses, then to this chapter next week with with a lot more detail. And we're going to unpack this in a lot more um tenacity. But the one I want to end with is the concept of fear. You see down there in verse 17 it says you can have confidence on the day of judgment. In verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love. God's perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Ann Landers, who um, I didn't realize some of this actually. I did some research on her this week. It was actually a pen name created by the Chicago Sun-Times in 1943 for an advice columnist who was known as Ruth Crawley. It was, she moved on, and it was taken over by a lady, Esther, who was known as Epi Letter, in 1955, who passed away in 2002. At the peak of Ann Lander's um, column, she was receiving 10,000 letters a month. Someone came along to her and says, Ann, I have a question for you. Out of these letters that you receive every single month, do you think you could boil them down to a common denominator? Is there something, is there a common thread that runs through all of them? Do you know what she said? The common thread that runs through these 10,000 a month letters. Do you know what it is? Fear. Fear. Grips the human heart, the human condition, and it destroys relationships. Fear. Now. I think there's no mistake why verse 18 says what it does and why in this subject of love, this concept breaks, comes out. We're going to talk about this at length next week as it relates to our human relationships and how fear we're in a fear driven culture. Are we not? You cannot turn on the news and not see fear, fear of the, of the stock market. Fear of job loss, fear of cancer, fear of the government, fear of my sk- my kids schools, fear of fear of fear is everywhere today. We're a fear driven culture, but the heart of this one is when referring to God, you do not need to fear God. His perfect love destroys that. You don't need to be afraid of your badness and your sin. It's an amazing thing says, because Jesus Christ came to this earth to pay the price that you and I could not pay. And when God looks, if you have embraced Jesus Christ, when God looks down at you, he sees Jesus Christ. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your darkness. He sees Jesus Christ. And when it talks about judgment, it's not referring to the same discernment and judgment that John. It's a different word than what John uses earlier in the chapter. This is referring to eternal damnation. Condemnation would be maybe a better word for it. This isn't making a discernment of, well, you know what, Adam? (laughs) You didn't do so well here. You could probably do better here. But this is referring to eternal damnation and permanent separation, which which is the epitome of hell. From God. He says, You do not need to be a fa- a fearful because I am for you. Jesus has paid the price. You embrace Jesus, fear is gone. I come back to that email I started with, those two emails. And I guess I ask this question as we close Am I, Adam Nagel, are you? wherever you're at this morning, drinking deep of the love of God. Is your container faced upwards? Are you receiving it? Have you embraced it? Are you allowing others who love God to speak into your life, making it possible for you to get your head around and your heart around the love of God? Why do you come to church and say, is it to drink deep, to be motivated, to be encouraged by the word of God so you can continue to take him in, get up in the morning, and have a quiet time? Why do you do it? Is it to drink in, to worship, and to be amazed at this magnificent creator God of the universe and to drink from him and take from him? That's the first challenge. I think the second challenge is this. I fully understand that this is an area where I read these emails. People wrestle with this. And one of the things that I have learned in life is as you wrestle with things... There is oftentimes more faith in honest doubt than there is in strong dogma. People who can be honest with where they're at and say, you know what? I am wrestling with this. And they can shoot straight and they can peel back the layers of the onion, so to speak, and pull back another layer and look and be honest and face reality of what their heart is screaming. And not just walk around declaring, God is love, God is love, God is love. But be honest and wrestle. You're going to find the love of God far quicker and faster than a person who is not wrestling. So be honest with this. Wrestle with this reality. Ask yourself, do I really, really, at the core level, is the love of God transforming my life and the lives of others around me as I spill into them? So we want to end with a video um, that actually captures this. The song that we sang at the beginning of the service, how he loves, in my opinion, it's an overdone song. (laughs) If you listen to word FM and if you listen to WJTL, or if you just like Christian music and Lincoln Brewster, you've heard this song beat to death. I think they played it every time I turned the radio on this past spring. I think I heard this song. on. (laughs) It was on every 10 minutes. It appeared. It was because it was a cool song. I think it resonated with our culture. I think why it was so big is because it, it screams the heart language of what so many in our world are saying. Does God really love me? And I love it how he sings through the, the hurricane, the sloppy wet kiss. And he uses some imagery in our modern day world. That I, but one of the things I've realized is songs get overdone. Sometimes, you know, there's a lot of hymns that I've sung for years and years and years. And after a while, I find myself singing them because ugh, that's what we sing. But sometimes when we stop and we hear the stories behind overdone songs, it brings life to them in ways that it just motivates the heart. There's a story behind this song. The author, the writer of the song's name was Mark McMillan. Though Lincoln Brewster made it very popular, Mark McMillan was the, um, the writer, the, the artist who wrote the song. We're going to watch a video here where he tells the story of this song. And I want you to listen to it and listen to his battle with love. And then when the video is over, we're going to stand. We're going to sing that song, and just really sing and resonate the love of God and allow it to struggle. One of the things that he doesn't share, he tells the story. And if you go on this afternoon, and if you go on, um, um, go on the in, online and and uh, check Mark McMillan out. You'll find some videos, live uh, concerts where he's sharing. He shares pieces that he doesn't share in this video. I'm going to share show with you, but the the it's actually rooted in the fact that a youth pastor. A, one of his best friends was uh, at a conference setting with other friends and other youth pastors, and they started to pray. They prayed for young people like Chris. Chris, was, this has been a youth pastor, screaming out for his students to come part of student ministry. This youth pastor was praying, and this youth pastor was burdened that these young people are consumed with the cares of the world and are not drinking deep of Jesus Christ and they're not being honest with life, and they're not embracing, and they're fake, and they're phony. And so this youth pastor is crying out, and he's praying out, and he prays this prayer. He says, God, whatever it takes, do it to reach these, this generation. That night, and you're going to hear this in the video, that night, that youth pastor died in an automobile accident. Mark McMillan was his best friend, the author of this song. And Mark McMillan went away and wrestled immensely With God, tell me you love, here's a guy who is passionate, who wants to see your glory spread, who wants to see your kingdom advance, who is, who has a wife and kids who loves deep and he's given his life to your mission and your, and who you are and you take him out and he wrestles with it. And that's the video we're going to see. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. and We're going to watch the video. And then as the video wraps up, the worship team is going to lead us again in this song that you're going to see the story of. I encourage you drink deep from the love of God and wrestle with it. Be honest at the very core if you've embraced it. God, thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you for your love. God, it is, it is scary. I think you list this section of fear here for a reason. It is scary. It's frightening to see how outward-oriented you are. You are so consumed with your glory and with us that you put your own son to death. That scares me, but that's radical. That reaches into my heart and touches in ways that nothing else in our human experience does. God, my prayer is for me this morning. My prayer is for every person in here that we would be a people who are radically consumed with that love, who understand it, who receive it and drink deep of you allowing your spirit to live inside of me in a vibrant way that then spills out to other people. God, help me. Help me to receive that from you. Help me to receive that from other people, from my wife, from Chris, from the elders, from people here in this church as they step out to give your grace and your love. Help me to receive it so it can be made complete in my life. Help me to grasp the love of God by experiencing it in other people. Help this church, God, to wrestle with this concept. Help us personally to wrestle with the love of God and come to grips with how much you love. Again, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you love. Thank you that you are for every single person here this morning. And God, I pray as we wrap this service up that they would feel and that they would know and that they would receive from you the reality that you are for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Love can be such a non-word sometimes. It loses its meaning, its potency, you know, like, I really love a cheeseburger, and then I really love you know like a sunny day and then i really love my family like they're none of those loves are remotely the same they're totally different things you know it's really difficult to write a song about love or even use the word love in a song you know because of what does it mean what does it really mean you know I'm just really excited to play, like, I love, you know, good crowds when they sing, and like, I I like it when they feel like they're part of what's going on, you know, because to me it's not about playing perfect music as much as it's about, like, uh, almost kind of like a relationship with each other. About seven years ago, when I was down in Jacksonville, Florida, I flew down there to work in the studio, and while I was down there, we got a call that several of our friends had been in a, a really bad car accident, and, um, Later on that night, I found out that uh, one of my best friends, uh, Steve, had died as a result of injuries from that accident. I woke up the next morning, and I was uh, just really angry and confused and, and hurt, you know. and I process things through music. You know, that's just how I do um, deal with my issues. And so um, I really needed, I felt that I really needed some sort of, um, I needed to have some sort of conversation with God because I was really, really frustrated. I felt like there were some things I needed to say. So that's what I would do through the music. And that's really a lot of where the song, How He Loves came out of was I needed these words. I needed this conversation. I'm really looking forward to playing music tonight. I'm really excited to um, be with all the people who are gonna be there. He is of me. Looks like a hurricane. I am a tree. bending the the weight of his wind. The love I'm singing about in that song is really is not a pretty, clean, it's not a Hollywood hot pink love. It's um, it's a kind of love that's willing to love things that are messy, and willing to love even the difficult and sort of um, you know, kind of gross kind of things, you know. Oh, how He loves us so! Oh, how He loves us! How That's really the kind of song I wanted to write is through this frustrating period, and he could, you know, in my anger and my resentment. And in my frustration, he could still love me through that. You know, and, and in this process of dealing with the, uh, my buddy dying, and, and uh, he could love me through that, and he was okay. He wasn't, you know, offended at the fact that I was angry at God. Just looking at these old uh, lyrics, you know, you think after seven, seven, seven years, it's still really tough. The song isn't a celebration of weakness and anger. It's a celebration of a God who would want to hang with us through those things, who would want to be a part of our lives through those things. And despite who we are, he would want to be a part of us and be a part of our community and be a part of our family. And that's that's the kind of love I, I think I'm talking about.